When I um, started working at the Montana Historical Society in 2019, I knew it would be a fun job. The best part would be writing the signs because every day I get to learn, almost every day, I learn something new about Montana history, national history, sometimes world history. Um, but I didn't know it would be so difficult to fit an entire property's history into 190 words. Um, and you might think that the research or the writing was the hard part, but the hardest part is all the stuff that I have to leave out. So I'm really delighted to be here today um, to share with you some of the stories from Butte and Anaconda that um, I had to leave out on the cutting room floor. Um, just a little bit of background first. The sign program has been around since 1990. So more than 30 years and we've written 1,800 signs that are posted all around the state and I'm hoping you are, I know you are those people that stop and read them and love them. Um, and I'm here to tell you today, there's lots of stories on, that we don't get to put on those signs. Um, our sign program is unique nationwide. We, um, a lot of states only put a name and a date and sort of leave you to wonder why is this property significant. Um, but we like to put a paragraph in there that tells you a little bit more about it. And the, the, our program is also unique in that um, property owners get a sweet deal. Um, the signs for historic district properties are $35, same price as they were in 1990. And um, individually listed properties um, get a bigger sign with a few more words, that, and they only cost $55, and we do all the work. So, um, and also, uh, recently we um, published all of the sign text um, on our website, historicmt.org. So, um, if you are looking to learn about a historic property but you're not actually going there, you can um, start by reading our sign text. And um, there's also not links for the photos. And we also have links to the National Register nomination. And um, occasionally we have links to interviews and um, uh, uh, stories, SoundCloud stories on there as well. So um, that is one of the ways that we could publish these backstories that aren't fitting on the signs, um, but at this moment we, we have just the capacity to do the work we're doing and we don't have a lot of time to post even more on our website, but um, hopefully uh, we will get to do that someday. Um, and this is an example, this is what Historic Montana uh, looks like. So please look it up, it is a great resource and all of the sign text on there is open source. You can use it, you can put it in your tours and um, reuse it um, with credit uh, as you like. So, for each sign that we write, um, we usually start with the National Register nomination. And um, those nominations generally are a wealth of information. And, um, but occasionally we do need to add more information. Okay, I'm just gonna hold it. Um, and it's when we do that additional research that we end up sometimes finding some spectacular backstories, too much information to fit on the sign. Um, unfortunately, these juicy backstories that I have to leave out are often the stories that homeowners don't really want emblazoned on the sign in their front yard. Um, they don't really want to know people, renters or future property 
uh, buyers uh, to know that three people were murdered in their house or that the couple who lived there got arrested for bank robbery or that the owner of their commercial block was killed in a drunk driving accident with two unmarried women. He was married. So that is where we are. And so for now, oops, did I go too far? For now, we post these backstories, um, where I'm talking about these backstories today, and mostly they fit into two categories, the sad and the gruesome. I'll talk a little bit about some of those murders and um, suicides and uh, uh, thefts and robberies, and also the other categories, just plain interesting people. We have so many interesting people in Montana, in Butte. For today, this is the Stevens Block. Um, you may have walked by it last night if you went to the speakeasy. Uh, it's on the corner of Park and Montana. Um, and here's what I wrote on the sign. Successful Irish immigrant Frank Stevens built this prominent Queen Anne-style retail and boarding house block in 1891. Stevens chose the Park in Montana location because the basement was already dug. He wrote a check for $499 for the hole in the ground on May 4th, 1889, and the building went up. The building's richly ornamented corner turret, decorative cast iron pilasters, and soaring plate glass windows represented the height of fashion. The 32-room Stevens Hotel operated as a boarding house and apartments for decades. The upper floors remain in near original condition, even today, with few modern improvements made over the last century. In fact, the upper two floors still have only one bath and one water closet per floor. The main floor and basement were home to many successful businesses, including Ludie's Grocers, one of the first self-serve grocery stores in Butte. Below the sidewalks, Joseph Richards, the Butte undertaker, operated one of Butte's first undertaking businesses until 1908. When Frank Stevens died in 1898, he was laid in state in the hall at the top of the first flight of the stairs. So that's what's on the sign. But what else happened? A lot happened in this building, and a lot of sorted things in the first uh, first few years that the building was there. First, um, I thought it was interesting that the Stevens family lived in, um, on the top floor, and so they were a witness to a lot of this drama that happened in the building. One of the first things I discovered that didn't fit on the signs was that in 1894, Georgia Thompson, uh, whoops, wrong way, Georgia Thompson, a young girl living in the building with a married couple, disappeared. Uh, the newspaper article talks about a search ensuing, but they did not turn up the girl. Um, the article hinted that her birth, mo her birth mother took her back, and as the headline says, the subheadline, and it was possibly a godsend to it. Interesting. <laughs> a few days later, a woman tried to commit suicide. Um, the snarky article in the paper reads, a young woman whose name is not Maud Jackson, or is not the only daughter of a rich eastern banker or a southern planter, drank poison in the Stevens block, end quote. Um, the issue was related to a man giving her the cold shoulder. The reporter mockingly suggests that the rebuff may have been too much for her delicate constitution. Fortunately, a physician was able to revive her. Um, and this is just the first of three known suicide attempts, of women suicide attempts in the building. Um, also in December 1894, Rufus Jones and his wife Frankie, who had one arm and was pregnant at the time, uh, tried to rob the Hughes Grocery. 
Um, they distracted the owner by asking for a ham that was located in the basement, and the husband uh, tried to steal the cash drawer. The clerk realized that something was up, and he ran up and tried to um, stop Rufus. Um, a fight ensued and uh, with a gun, and Rufus got away and later was arrested um, uh, found in a cabin on Granite Street, um, and he got three years for that incident. Uh, 1895, an embezzler, Henry Simons, was found hiding out in the building, waiting for a good chance to escape to Canada. Um, one day after the embezzler was located uh, in the block, a runaway horse smashed into the plate glass window of the grocery store. The article is very short and only mentions the cost of the window, but doesn't mention the cost of the horse or the value of the horse or the contents of the store that were destroyed. Uh, September 1896, another suicide, Ethel Noyes, tries to uh, commit suicide by taking six grains of morphine. Oops. Luckily, a doctor came and pumped her stomach, and hours later, she vacated the building. August 1899, um, Ella Keys, uh, a boarder at the Stevens Hotel, was uh, again uh, another woman rebuffed by a male neighbor, neighbor when she asked him to live with her, even though she was a divorced woman. She begged many times and threatened suicide and finally drank a vial of carbolic acid. Carbolic acid is a byproduct of coal tar and very poisonous. Um, and I actually see uh, in my research, a lot of carbolic acid suicide attempts. Um, so this was this was not new to me, but um, this is a, on just another one that happened in, in the building. Um, the, and Ella, of course, didn't swallow enough carbolic acid, thanks goodness, and she was um, revived. Um, but these sensational reports um, are kind of like um, clickbait today, where the if you're on a web page and there's something sensational, they want you to click through and read it. It was an effort to get readers, but it was also um, a Victorian-era notion of um, proper female behavior and um, uh, sort of promoting the idea that if um, women spurned by men, that they were failures and that they might as well be dead. Ah, this one. A little close to home here, the next incident I uncovered in November 1899, Anaconda Company carpenter and resident in the block, David Dyer, age 38, um, was sent to the pest house with smallpox. Uh, the physician who initially came to the Stevens block and examined him said, couldn't make a di diagnosis, said he didn't have it. Um, and then days later, he broke out in sores everywhere, and of course, he was um, taken to the pest house. And the building, the entire building, everyone in it was um, quarantined. But I thought it was interesting that the article noted that by the end of the day of the, the quarantine that most of the residents had removed to other quarters, which is curious because they were likely spreading the disease to other quarters. <laughs> um, so that's just some of the backstory. Um, of the Stevens Block, this is the Stevens Block today, lovely historic building recently um, uh, worked on and restored. And um, I did include, in the original sign text, I did include the story 
about the robbery and the horse sailing through the plate glass window and mentioned the three suicides very briefly. But the owner declined and politely asked me to talk more about the architectural history and the history of the Stevens family. <laughs> Not surprising. Um, here we go. Another wonderful, chock full of interesting stories property in South Butte, 1212 East 2nd Street. Um, this unassuming little um, worker cottage. Uh, surprised me. Um, when I started digging into the newspaper archives about this house, I found that it was the church um, parish house for St. Joseph's Church before St. Joseph's Church that we have now was built. It was the parish house from 1902 to 1906. And I thought, oh, that's, that's great. That'll, that'll make for a really good sign. And then I found out that one of the tenants, um, in starting in 1911, Art Dancero, um, he was manufacturing oyster cocktails in a shed in the backyard. What's oyster cocktail, I said? Um, it turns out oyster cocktail was the forerunner to shrimp cocktail. Art Dancero was importing oysters from Baltimore, um, not the West Coast, oddly. Um, he was importing them and bottling them in a tangy tomato Tabasco Worcestershire sauce, which we all know as cocktail sauce now. Um, and he was making this in his backyard and selling it. Um, he was canning it and selling it in local bars. Um, and the reason for that, I had to do more research, was because you couldn't make shrimp cocktail in the early 1900s. Shrimp spoiled so quickly, you couldn't ship it across the country. It would be spoiled when it got there. But oysters, unshucked and shipped in the winter and kept relatively cold, um, lasted for quite a while. So oyster cocktail was the delicacy that many people um, often ate at Christmas time and throughout the winter months. But that's not all. It's not all about oyster cocktail. Um, it turns out that Art Dancero, the oyster man, was a terrible person. Um, in 1917, after um, many years um, spent abusing his wife, Laura, um, they, he threatened her life and she shot him and killed him in the house. And the police found him dead at the foot of the bottom stairs in the house the detectives and, and um, also doctors who examined Laura um, found many bruises and contusions on her body. Um, luckily, the judge was merciful and she was exonerated for the murder. Um, <clears throat> however, she did not fare that well as women often did in uh, this time um, in history. Her in-laws <laughs> lived in the cottage behind the house and they gained custody of her four children. And she was forced to move to another part of town and live in an apartment and um, she became a hotel maid. Um, and she um, was sued uh, so that she would have to provide child support for her kids. Um, she worked for a while as, uh, and, and later remarried in 1929 but then divorced again, um, citing grounds of cruelty. and. Um, it does look like she made amends with her family. In 1940, she was living with her mother-in-law, whose son she killed. Um, and um, by the time she died, she was living with her son. Uh, writing um, that sign and, and writing the sign for this building, the Lily Boarding House, um, also reveals another story of spousal abuse, um, although this story has a happier ending. Um, the sign I wrote reads, Mrs. Lilly, as many tenants knew her, manages apartment building from her first floor unit for nearly 50 years. 
Architect Marin D. Kern designed the building in 1909 for Lily and her husband John R. Ross. It was originally two stories with open front porches. John was a power engineer at the Stewart Mine and Lily was at home with her younger brother William and daughter Louise. John died of cancer in 1909, uh, a very familiar sort of incident of so many women were young w widows in, in Butte. Um, that's an aside, that wasn't an aside. Um, <laughs> but Lily, um, very soon after John died, Lily, the next year, married John's friend, pipe fitter Albert C. McNeil in 1910. The McNeils added a third story in 1913 and enclosed the front porches in 1918. Lily divorced Albert on June 4, 1929, but remained sole owner of the building despite a lawsuit in which Albert claimed half ownership of the building. Three weeks after her divorce, Lily married Barbara James C. Crook. James and Lily enjoyed cross-country road trips and Lily was president of the Alpine chapter of the Rocky Mountain Garden Club. After James died in 1951 and Lily in 1956, the building fell into grave disrepair. Sandy and Carl Donahue rescued it from demolition in the 1990s and converted it into a single home. So the sign does pack in a lot of detail, but it doesn't reveal half the drama in Mrs. Lily's life. Um, uh, she submitted numerous social column stories to the Montana Standard. She was in the paper a lot. And she was um, often talking about fun parties and long family trips to Yellowstone and Canada and the East Coast. But it turns out her life was less than happy. When she filed for divorce from Albert McNeil in 1929, she revealed that her husband, oh, hold on one second here. She revealed that her husband had been abusive almost since the day they got married in 1910. The news article is quite explicit. She charges him with seizing her by the throat, September 1st, 1911, and flourishing a keen-edged butcher knife at her throat and threatening to kill her. He also threatened her with other deadly homemade weapons, including a hose filled with nails. Uh, she left him in 1925, and her friends, um, for a short time, she left him and her friends trying to get him to change his attitude. But she also asked for a restraining order in Sudan, but it, it was a short-term restraining order and expired, and she moved back in with him. Um, but by 1929, the situation was worse, and she filed for a divorce and a, a permanent restraining order. Um, she also stipulated that she would she wanted full interest in the house and half interest in the car. Um, oddly, at first, her husband didn't file for divorce. Uh, he only sued her for half interest in their house and half interest in the car. Um, Lily actually prevailed in court, not a common thing, in 1929, um, and she was um, granted a permanent restraining order and full ownership of the house. I don't know what happened to the car. Um, uh, this. It was such an interesting property because divorce proceedings were often listed in the paper, um, but not in this sort of detail. And also, women did not often come out ahead of their husbands. Um, in fact, it wasn't until 1933 that the um, legislature revised Montana laws spelling out that a woman's property acquired either before or after her marriage is her own property, which she may convey or transfer without the agreement of the husband. 
So she went out on that long before it was actually the law. So perhaps Butte had adopted favorable women's property uh, rights laws before the rest of the state, or perhaps the judge was ahead of his time. I haven't had time to fully research that, but it's certainly an interesting story. And of course, if Lily had not retained ownership of her building, that would have also been taking away her only source of income as, um, as a single woman. Um, which leads me to more stories of women landlords. Um, many uh, uh, women landlords, uh, they were quite common um, in the early 1900s, and uh, many uh, widowed women ran boarding houses as a source of income. Um, but there's much evidence I keep coming across that indicate a good number of women, um, not just widows, but single and married women as well, were running full-fledged real estate investment businesses. When I wrote the sign for the Moore's Palace block uh, in Anaconda, right on Main Street in Anaconda, I uncovered two interesting sisters. They were originally from Wales, and they came to own major properties in Anaconda and then also Butte. Uh, the sisters were married at the time that they started in real estate, and one of them was widowed very young, Mary Volenweider, and her sister Margaret Morse. Um, in uh, 1911, in partnership um, with Thomas Silha, um, hired an architect to build um, the Morris Palace block, which is pictured here. It was a $20,000 brick building. Um, it had furnished rooms upstairs, which the, uh, Mary and uh, Margaret ran the rooms upstairs, and the, the lower stores were rented out to tenants. Um, and eventually, Thomas Silha, their partner, sold out to them as well. But there wasn't a whole lot of detail on um, this sign to talk about um, these two women who were heavily invested in real estate. Before they, and they were really interesting ladies, um, before they um, started with this, this building, um, Mary and Margaret were um, experienced. Um, in 1908, they were running um, the Metropolitan Cafe restaurant um, in the lower level of their building on 321 East Park and a boarding house upstairs, and they were also running a 50-room boarding house next door. And this is also interesting that Margaret Morse, in 1906, um, before these businesses were underway, she had lost her foot in a tragic accident where she was walking down the street and a, an I-beam from a building blew off the building during a windstorm and crushed her foot, and she lost her foot. Um, her court case to get a settlement to um, uh, pay for her suffering took five years and I'm thinking the settlement she got was what helped her invest in the Morris Palace block. Um, eventually they um, added more and more properties in Anaconda. They owned numerous single-family homes and in 1924 they purchased the Rialto Grot garage on East Galena Street, and in 1927 they renovated an old hotel, the Edison Hotel on East Mercury, and turned that into a parking garage, um, and um, been, um, profited off um, so many more people uh, driving cars and needing to have a place to park cars. And I would think that managing a parking business might be easier than managing tenants in rooms. Um, and oh, when they died, both of their obituary, obituaries um, 
noted that they were pioneer business women of Anaconda. So they were well known. And um, so I've written, recently written numerous signs for a project in Anaconda, about 25 new signs went up in Anaconda. And uh, more recently, um, that effort is going on in Butte as well, and I've written about 10 new signs. And over and over, I'm struck by women um, in real estate in, in Butte, and um, from the phone books to the newspapers, I see mention of some of the, the major buildings in Butte um, being either run by or owned by, built from the ground up by women owners. And that includes the Kelly House, the Leonard Hotel, the Curtis Hotel, which is Gamers, the Hamilton Hotel that was named Leary. Nearby, uh, where we were last night, the Palmy building, also run by the Palmy sisters from France. The Dykeman Hotel, Claire Aleno and Anna Thompson ran that, built this building from the ground up and ran it for 40 years. The Kenwood, also built from scratch um, for women owners. And the lovely and recently restored O'Rourke building was um, uh, operated by, um, and the, the addition that you see here was built um, in 1984. Um, Mary O'Rourke and her daughter Marie. And Marie lived in this building until, I think, 1978. So really interesting uh, story there about women in real estate that I, I hope to research more in the future. Um, so all of the stories aren't about women, as I'm sure you know. There are plenty of unsung stories about men in Butte. Um, this lovely building on Park in Idaho has a long and interesting history. It was one of Butte's early automobile dealerships and repair shops. It was home to Howard Pierce's Silver Bow Automobile Company from 1911 to 1913. And then from 1913 to 1940, it was home to the not very Butte's first reinforced concrete buildings. Uh, reinforced concrete was in its infancy um, in 1911. It was kind of a new building technology. Um, it's also interesting as a somewhat rare example of the California Mission Revival style. Um, not uh, a popular style for commercial buildings and uh, it didn't really proliferate a whole lot in Montana as a residential style either. Um, also, in the 1980s, this building was a notorious flop house and was um, multiple times under threat of demolition. But the most interesting aspect of this building is its first tenant, Howard Pierce, uh, who started the Silver Bowl Automobile Company, and he only located in the building for two years. Um, but he was uh, an interesting guy. He uh, reportedly built the first automobile in Butte. And, um, he had one of the first auto dealerships in this building in Butte. He sold and serviced uh, Stevens Doria Autos. That's that. That um, that's an example of what a Stevens Doria Auto looked like. And um, these were not sort of average Joe cars. These were luxury cars. They cost twenty five hundred to four thousand dollars in nineteen thirteen. So you know, several times the amount that a miner would make in a year. Um, Five minutes, all right. Um, although uh, Howard Pierce only occupied this building for two years, uh, his influence on uh, Butte and um, the auto business was, uh, uh, he, had, he made a major impact. 
Um, he drove cars, he broke records, he got into accidents, he broke a land speed record um, for driving from Butte, no, he drove from Missoula to Butte in 1911 at a record for five hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> Super fast. Um, <laughs> that year, uh, that year he also staged a sensational event that I wish I could go to at the Butte racetrack where he raced an aviator, Eugene Eli, um, they raced around the track for three miles. Um, Eugene Eli threw, flew his airplane about a hundred or a couple hundred feet above the auto and they went around in circles and of course at the very last minute, Howard Pierce won by a hair <laughs> against the airplane. Um, uh, not all of his uh, publicity uh, stunts were stunts, they were uh, just incidents, um, but they still made the papers. Um, in 1910, before he opened that building, he was sued because he was speeding down the street and he ran over someone's dog. It was a purebred Airedale and the owner sued him for the, the value of the dog, $150. Um, he was also arrested for speeding and um, publicly made an example. Uh, and the judge said, you don't seem to have any idea as to the value of the lives of the people on the street, and just to teach a lesson this time, I'll impose a fine of $50, and the next time you'll get the limit. Um, <laughs> um, and the judge said, I hope the imposition of this fine will serve as a warning to you and all others. Um, the fine may not have been that discouraging, though. Um, a month later, he was driving clients around in his car, and um, he was fined for not having the proper tags to drive the car. So he was, uh, this early on, you instituted um, tags laws for people to drive. Um, nevertheless, Howard uh, was a respected Butte business, businessman. He remained in the auto business his whole life and he sat on the Butte Chamber of Commerce and led many efforts to improve roads across the state. Um, in 1928, uh, just before Montana's economic depression got worse than anyone could imagine, um, he built the building pictured in this newspaper article and called it the Motor Clinic. The first two floors were an auto dealership and repair shop, and the third floor he partnered with the Murray Hospital and that was a doctor's clinic on the third floor. So pretty pioneering in those days to have those days to have this multi-use build, building. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, it, uh, this building, his use of this building didn't last that long. In 1936, he was killed in an auto accident in Nevada. Um, the Motor Clinic building um, remained an auto dealership for many years, but was eventually torn down. And um, this building was on the corner across from the Hennessy building, um, and now it's a Wells Fargo bank. It's not, it's not that corner, it, and it still stands. It's uh, Northwest Energy's energy building. It's oh, Kitty corner. it's the other it's, corner? Yes, and it still stands. So it is still there. They put a new modern facade on it, so That's it doesn't look like the right shot, but it's, yeah. Okay, good news. There is good news there. Um, and fortunately, the building on Park in Idaho, um, his original location still stands as well. And one last fun story that I hated to leave. Actually, I didn't write this sign. Um, my colleague Martha wrote it as the entrance of the, of that building. 
Um, my colleague Martha Cole wrote this sign, um, and uh, the building was built in 1885 by a dentist, and the dentist, uh, the, the very next year, sold the building to um, Jesse and Elizabeth Wharton, and um, they lived um, in the building until 1909. Jesse managed the Butte Electric Wheel Railway for copper magnate William Clark. Um, in 1898, he defended the railway's practice of transporting ore down Montana Street. His neighbors complained about the dreadful ore cars, but he said, defending his boss, the noise of the ore cars has a most invigorating effect and lulls me to sleep every night. It is one happy dream for me. Um, he was actually best known, though, for um, creating both Clark Park and Columbia Gardens um, for William Clark. Um, uh, Clark provided the funding for Columbia Gardens, and uh, Wharton actually carried out the vision uh, managing the construction of these parks. Um, so there was clearly a lot to say about Jesse Wharton. He was an important guy in Butte history. Um, but uh, we hated to leave out this story about Wharton's pants. Um, uh, an article in 1898 said, a daring sneak thief entered the residence of J.R. Wharton's and deliberately stole the railroad manager's $12 trousers from beside his bed. The pants had $4.55 inside. Wharton wasn't so upset about um, losing the $4.55. He was uh, upset about uh, his, uh, the inconvenience of his trousers having gone missing because he couldn't get to work until noon the next day because he had to wait to ask a neighbor to go out and buy him a new, or borrow pants so that he could go out and buy new pants. Um, I just thought this was the most interesting side. Here's a guy who can afford $12 trousers, but he didn't have two pairs. <laughs> so fun stories like that are um, behind a lot of our National Register signs around the state. I hope you um, next time you're out and about, read our signs and read between the lines. And if you run into the owners, maybe ask them and they'll give you some of the backstories too.